in Iceland. Oh, okay. <laughs> Material, if you download it, just in the next where you turn it on, that is what you see. So we'll, yeah. people who are experts in chromatin? No hands. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, what do you know about? Do you know about how DNA is packaged in the cell? I'm just wondering how much of the basic stuff we need to go over and how much we can talk about other things. Right? Okay, so let's have a quick swoop through how DNA is packaged in the cell, and then we can talk about more exciting stuff. Yeah? But it's important that you know the basics. Right? And I need everyone to be at the same level. <laughs> <laughs> to get to that point. Okay. This is what changed. Weird. <laughs> um, okay. Alright. Alright, so what what is critical to remember is that um, for a cell to be able to divide, it needs to be able to uh, okay, so right. just to go over the basics of um, this highly unusual form of chromosomes. This is the most compacted form of chromosomes. This is a metaphase chromosome. Okay, this is the stage at which you can see chromosomes. Um, and you can see here that it's made of two sister chromatids that are held together at the waist by what's known as the centromeric sequences. Um, we have telomeres at the ends, and um, as I just mentioned, interphase chromosomes are not visible. Okay, so this is sort of a very unusual form of the chromosome, but it's the form that you'll always see displayed in textbooks. Um, so chromosomes also carry all of our genetic material. So in order for them to function, to be able to distribute that material to their daughter cells, chromosomes must be able to replicate. Okay? You have to be able to replicate the whole of the chromosome. Okay? People are going to get into more detail about regions that are difficult to replicate in other lectures. Um, replicated chromosomes have to be actually partitioned to two daughter cells. Okay, so the region that we just looked at on the metaphase chromosome, the centromere, is critical in that process in terms of capturing spindle microtubules to allow chromosome segregation to occur accurately. Um, the ends of the chromosome must be protected from being recognized as DNA breaks, right? So telomere pro binding proteins are critical in that process. Whoops. Yeah, okay. So. Just to sort of recap basic levels of packaging of DNA, we go from just the DNA duplex. This duplex is initially wrapped around histone optimus to form the nucleosomes. Okay, these nucleosomes assemble what's known as the beads on a string configuration of chromatin. These beads on a string are then further packaged to form 30 nanometer fiber. Okay, there's alternate modes for how that is thought to be occurring. Um, and then these 30 nanometer fibers undergo higher order packaging. They generate loops where they're held by a scaffold, and then these um, looped um, chromosomes undergo further compaction 
to form what we know of as the interphase chromosomes. Okay, and then there's a whole other level of packaging that has to occur in order to generate that metaphase chromosome that I showed you to start out with. Okay? All right, so just to recap, we go from DNA to being packaged in nucleus around um, histoptomies to form nucleosomes to forming higher order packaging, um, and then finally through further compensation to form this metaphase chromosome. Okay, so the net result of packaging goes from this 2 nanometer fiber to a 1,400-nanometer fiber um, with a 10,000-fold compaction of the DNA in this structure, okay? So it's a massive amount of packaging, right? So if you start to think about what your DNA does, right, what's DNA important for, right? It carries our genes. It has to be accessed to allow reading of those genes, right? So how can you access this really compacted structure, right? That's a really important question in the chromatin field, right? So there's huge numbers of studies going on in terms of trying to understand about the enzymes that are involved in um, opening up structures at particular stages um, when you need to transcribe a gene, for example. What is the process that occurs to allow opening of the chromatin to allow that to occur? Um, when RNA polymerase goes through a gene, it strips off histone octamus. Octomers have to be removed, and then they have to be redeposited behind the polymerase. Right? So there's a huge amount of transactions that have to occur with the DNA in order to allow this <laughs> massively compacted structure to be able to be read, to be um, accessed by regulatory factors. Okay, so um, assembly of nucleosomes um, is a very well understood process. Um, there are numerous um, histone chaperones that are involved in this process. Um, but really, once you get to higher levels of order, order of packaging, even sort of the 30 nanometer fiber, going from this stage up, this is really still very, very murky. There are many um, experiments suggesting different models for how this is occurring. It's really a strongly active area of research in the chromatin field, right? So people, you'll read reviews and people sort of come down heavily in favor of particular models, um, but there's a lot of dispute, even at the level of how to get to 30 nanometer fiber, okay? There are many different models out there, and they all have great support, right, from X-ray crystallography studies, et cetera, et cetera, but there are different models, <laughs> depending on how the experiments have been done. Okay, so, Chromatin, which you're going to talking about a lot, is DNA plus the histones plus a huge number of non-histone chromosomal proteins. Okay? Um, and just to show you some EMs, this is the 30 nanometer fiber, okay? and then this is the beads on the string level of compaction of DNA. Okay? So the beads are the nucleosomes, and then the string is the um, intervening DNA sequences between the nucleosomes. Okay, so one way that we can look at chromatin structure is by doing an experiment called a mycococcal nuclease digestion. So if you take chromatin that you isolate from cells and digest it with mycococcal nuclease, you can cleave in these linker DNA sequences. Okay? And that um, allows you to then isolate release nucleosome particles. And this can be important for many reasons. I mean, you might want to do mass spec to look at what chromatin modifications, what histone modifications are occurring. Um, but what it allows you to do is to get an idea of the um, chromosome 
or the, the, the nucleosome organization in a particular region. So you can do a micrococcal nuclease digestion and then run out the products on a, an agarose gel and stem the thigid bromide. And you can see here that as you increase the level of MMase, you get um, further patterning into these nucleosome bands. So you can see mononucleosomes here, dinucleosomes, trinucleosomes, and so on throughout the gel. But what this also allows you to do is you can then go in and probe with a particular DNA sequence using a southern blot and actually look at nucleosome occupancy in a particular region of the genome. Okay? There are many more sophisticated ways that we can do this now. We can sequence nucleosome sequences um, to actually get a line. You basically do a similar experiment where you demonase digestion and then you take those pieces of DNA and sequence them. And then through that, you can determine how nucleosomes are occupying on a genome-wide level. Okay? But this is a sort of quick and easy way if you want to look at a particular locus. Um, so, what's in these mysterious nucleosomes? So nucleosomes composed an octomeric histone core in conjunction with 147 bases of double-stranded DNA. And in this octomeric histone core, there are two copies of H2A, two copies of H2B, two copies of H3, and two copies of H4. Okay? That's the simplest way of thinking about it. <laughs> right? We now know that things are more complicated, but the, the standard is that the histone optimas are always comprising these eight subunits. Um, so um, there's another histone that I tend not to think about too much because I work in a low organism. I work in a, a, a yeast which doesn't really have a histone H1. But high eukaryotes have um, histone H1, which is very important in the packaging of chromatin. Okay? It binds in the linker DNA outside of the nucleosomes. But it's important how the nucleosomes can package with each other. Um, so there are histone variants, as I alluded to, um, for all of the histones except for histone H4. Okay? And these histone variants are actually really cool, and we're going to talk about those a bit more later on. Histones are highly conserved between species. Histones are the one protein that everyone always quotes as being the most conserved protein between species. But actually there are some differences between species, which are fascinating. Um, we're, we're starting to uncover some really interesting stuff. Um, but they're always sort of thought of as being very, very highly conserved between species. Um, and histone H1 in particular can be replaced by other specialised histones in some cases. So, for example, um, in nucleating red blood cells in birds, H1 is replaced by another histone called H5. Okay, so histones. What do you know about histones? Anything? Right? You guys haven't had your coffee yet. <laughs> It's much more fun for me if you talk to me. <laughs> what do you know about histones? Don't read the slide. <laughs> I should uh, cover it up. <laughs> uh, all right, they're, they're proteins. You already said they form together into an octomer in each nucleosome. I think there's two copies of each of the four subunits. Right. Um, and they all have tails right. that can be covalently modified, um, which is uh, like epigenetics, basically. Right, right. So covalent modification of tails is a really cool area. There's lots of fun stuff coming out of that. But the other end of histones are also really important, right? How, and that's the histone fold region, and that determines how the histones can package together, right? So um, in these histone fold domains, um, we, we know that H3 interacts with H4, um, and H2A interacts with H2B, okay? 
So the way that they interact is through these histone fold domains. So there are also covalent modifications in histone fold domains. Okay? There are many important modifications that occur, but it's much less understood than the modifications that occur on tails. Again, it's another area of active research, but it's not kind of as sexy as the tails have been. So, but people are drilling down there and really starting to understand more about what these modifications in the, the body of the histone is doing. Okay, so H3 and H4 form a dimer through this sort of handshake configuration through the histone fold domains. And then these dimers go on to form the histone H3, H4 tetramer. H2A and H2B only form dimers. Okay? So the H3, H4 tetramer associates with the DNA to form the nucleosome. Okay? These are the guys that are deposited onto the DNA, and then we have two dimers of H2A and H2B become incorporated to generate the full nucleosome. Okay? Um, so as you can see in this nucleosome, the histone fold domains are sort of buried within the DNA. Okay? But the histone tails stick out from the DNA. Okay? Um, and this process of nucleosome assembly is very, very dependent on histone chaperones. Okay? What else do you know about histones? Does anyone know anything else about histones? No? Okay, they're really basic proteins. Okay? You try and purify histones from bacteria, you get insoluble precipitates. Right? They are very, very basic proteins. And that's very important because it's the basic nature of the histones that's critical to allow association with the acidic DNA. So that's a really important feature of histones. And it's also a feature which means, so many of the um, basic residues um, are in the tails. So these tails are chock full of lysines and arginines. Okay? And it's the modification of those lysine and arginines. So in the normal basic state, they can wrap tightly into the DNA. Right? They have an electrostatic attraction for the DNA. Um, but as they're modified, in particular by acetylation, they now lose their basic nature, so there's a less tight association with DNA. Okay? <clears throat> so it's critical um, as the histones are synthesized, but there are chaperones that wrap the histones and actually are important for their import into the nucleus and also for their assembly into chromatin. Okay? Histone chaperones are very, very important. Okay, so um, this is just to give you an idea of. Um, what the inside of the nucleosome looks like and how the, the histone is packaged. Um, and you can see that there are many sites of interaction between these basic histones and the acidic um, DNA that wraps around them. Okay, so the DNA that wraps around forms 1.7, it wraps 1.7 fold times around this histone optimal core. Okay. So not all DNA sequences are equivalent. Um, there are certain sequences that nucleosomes prefer to associate with, and there are certain sequences that kind of repel nucleosome formation. Okay? Um, what is a sort of general arm-waving characteristic is that sequences in promoters of genes tend to be rather AT-rich, and nucleosomes do not like to sit on these runs of A's and T's. Okay? These are um, 
really sequences that sort of um, don't allow good engagement of nucleosome formation in those regions. Okay? And if you think about it, that's an important facet in terms of being able to regulate gene expression. Right? You need to move nucleosomes in order to um, actually transcribe. And so having a sequence in those promoter regions that doesn't really like to have nucleosomes occupying those sites is a good strategy for being able to open up a gene for transcription. Okay. All right. So I think we've said all of this. Um, 147 bases of DNA wrapped 1.7 times around the outside of the optima. There's these linker regions whose length depends on species. It also depends on tissue. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of regulation of linker length um, during uh, development as well. DNA, okay, you think about DNA replication. When you generate a new strand of DNA, it has to be populated by chromatin, right? So um, the, there's a whole set of these chaperone proteins that I was talking about that are important for depositing H3 and H4 onto newly replicated DNA, okay? So there's a particular chaperone called CAF1, which is responsible, and it interacts with um, a protein that follows the DNA polymerase, okay? So it, it's recruited to sites of replication by PCNA, proliferating cell nuclear antigen, okay? So CAF1 is wrapped around H3 and H4, and it gets recruited to sites of DNA replication through its interaction um, with PCNA, and it's important for depositing nucleosomes onto the newly replicated DNA. Okay? There's a lot of interest in trying to understand how um, nucleosomes are partitioned on the two strands of DNA after replication. Again, that's a very active area of research. There are many different ideas about whether it's a one-on-one -on -one split, how it goes, whether things are completely removed, completely replaced, whether nucleosomes are split and only partial segregation occurs onto these new strands. Again, very active area of research. Okay, so DNA um, that's wrapped around the nucleosomes. Okay, you might have this idea that it's sort of a rigid structure, but it's not. Um, there are many chromatin remodeling enzymes whose role in life is to move DNA around these nucleosome cores. These chromatin remodelers get recruited sometimes by transcription factors, um, sometimes by particular DNA sequences, um, and they can come in in an ATP-dependent fashion. They can catalyze nucleosome sliding. So what these guys do is they actually um, facilitate the movement of the nucleosomal DNA around the nucleosome optimum. Um, so these are called ATP-dependent chromatin remodeling complexes. There are hundreds of them in our cells, and many of them have been found to be mutated in cancer. Okay? So many of the factors that I'm telling you about today have been identified to be mutated in cancer, which makes a lot of sense, right? You start screwing around with the mechanisms that allow access to DNA, and you start to cause massive changes in gene expression, um, structural integrity of chromosomes, and so on. Okay, <clears throat> so as I mentioned, there are histone chaperones that bind to histones. These often work in conjunction with these ATP-dependent chromatin remodeling complexes, 
to allow exchange of H2A, H2B dimers. So I should mention, sorry. Um, so we talked about H3 and H4 being the histones that associate with DNA. They come in first, and then H2 and H2B come in second, the dimers of H2A and H2B. So when you disassemble a nucleosome, the first things to get popped out are H2A and H2B. Okay? So there are um, chaperones that facilitate this exchange of H2A H2B dimers. And these chromatin remodelers can work in conjunction with these chaperones and actually take out all of the nucleosome um, from a particular site and then facilitate the exchange of the nucleosome core. Okay, so this is important because this allows you to actually replace particular histones at particular loci with histone variants, for example, okay? If you need to have a particular feature incorporated into chromatin at a particular region, you can do that by replacement with a histone variant. And we'll talk more about the histone variants. Okay, so we've gone through the very basic level of packaging into nucleosomes, some of the features of nucleosomes. These nucleosomes, as we mentioned, have to get further packaged to form these 30 nanometer fibers. So, as I mentioned, there are multiple models. This is the zigzag model, where you basically go zigzag, zigzag, zigzag with these nucleosomes, and they just package against each other. Um, the alternate model is the solenoid model, um, and there's, there's great structural information backing both of these models. Right? It just depends on whose lab it's being done in, the particular conditions that these experiments have been performed under. Um, you know, not everything maybe in contrast to what you're taught as undergraduates, <laughs> it's black and white, right? There are shades of grey in all of these areas, and, and people have their pet theories about how things are working. Um, so this is the solenoid model, which is sort of a, a more um, high-level architecture, perhaps, and you generate these little blobs, um, these solenoids. But the critical things that um, are important in terms of assembly of the 30 nanometer fiber are these stone tails. Okay? These tails actually interact with each other between the distinct nucleosomes. Okay? And this is an important part of the packaging um, to generate these higher order structures. Histone H1 that we briefly mentioned sits here, the exit point of the DNA from the nucleosome, and its presence can facilitate bending of this DNA, which can then lead to um, facilitate nucleosome packaging between nucleosomes. Okay, does that make sense? If I say anything that doesn't make sense, just shout out, okay? Um, okay, so chromosomes got the two sister chromatids and the waist, which is known as the centromere. Chromosome function relies on the centromere, telomeres, and many origins of replication. DNA is condensed 10,000 volts from mitosis. Chromatin is DNA plus histones and non-histone chromosomal proteins, and the nucleosome is the basic unit of chromatin. Okay, so there are two major types of chromatin, right? Heterochromatin, which is the type of chromatin that you find at telomeres, at centromeres. It's also the type of chromatin that you find at regions where genes are silenced. Okay, so we can think about heterochromatin as being two distinct types. There's two flavors of heterochromatin. There's constitutive heterochromatin, which is found in these structural regions, so the telomeres and the centromeres. But there's also facultative heterochromatin. Okay, so this is assembled at regions where you want to squish gene activity. Okay? Um, so, for example, in um, tissues 
you may want to suppress expression of um, a gene which is only expressed in other tissues. You wouldn't want to express globin um, in your liver. Well, we do it for time development, but <laughs> you wouldn't express globin in your brain, right? <laughs> and so the globin gene is repressed through facultative heterochromatin um, in tissues other than hematopoietic um, lineages. All right, and then the other form of chromatin is euchromatin. So this is what we generally think of as being gene-rich and transcriptionally active. Um, it's less condensed, and it's scattered throughout the chromosome, okay? It's not in these particular regions like the centromism. So what influences chromatin structure, whether the regions are condensed or more transcriptionally active? And it's the histone tails and modifications of those tails that are really important. So your friend mentioned epigenetics earlier. Um, I want you to know the definition of epigenetics because it's widely used incorrectly. Right? So epigenetics is not just modifications that occur on histone tails. Right? Epigenetics is actually defined by being a change in the state of expression of a gene that doesn't involve mutation, but that can be inherited in the absence of the signal that initiated the change. Right? That's the formal definition of epigenetics, but most people use epigenetics to talk about chromatin modifications, that's epigenetics, right? So, but you know, this is this is the this is the, the real definition of epigenetics, okay? And again, you'll find that there's stuff in you know, there are arguments all through the literature about what we should be calling epigenetics nowadays because people are sort of viewing it as being a more plastic um, definition. So for genetic inheritance, if you've got a particular gene and there's a DNA mutation that occurs that allows silencing of that gene, that gene stays off forever, right? Unless you have a reversing mutation that allows it to be expressed again. In terms of epigenetic inheritance, your gene is on, it's a chromatin change that causes silencing of that gene, and then when that gene is inherited by daughter cells, the gene um, can be maintained in the off state, okay? But this gene can go back to being active if there's a change in the chromatin environment, okay? So there's a difference between genetic and epigenetic inheritance. Okay, um, something that we have to think about in terms of heterochromatin and euchromatin is how do you stop mixing of the two, right? How do you stop heterochromatin just completely spreading throughout your genome um, and causing silencing of everything? So there are these barrier sequences um, that usually restrict um, heterochromatin spread into euchromatin and in some instances can stop euchromatin spread um, into the other way around. Um, but if you can imagine a situation where you have such a setup where you have a region of heterochromatin, a barrier, and then a region of euchromatin, and you have a chromosomal translocation, now this barrier is removed, and you could imagine a situation where you can get spreading of one form of chromatin to take over the other. Um, so silencing could be the dominant or, or active gene expression can be the dominant form. So um, this obviously can occur. You can imagine different situations in different cell lineages um, with different numbers of genes being active or inactive depending on what has happened in terms of spreading of heterochromatin um, into neighboring euchromatin. 
And position effect variegation is a term that you'll come across if you read anything about chromatin. Um, and the classic experiment uh, that defined position effect variegation uses, it's really confusing, um, this white gene. So the white gene in Drosophila encodes red eye color, okay, just to make life easy. <laughs> okay, so um, if the white gene is present in its normal location, it's separated by the barrier sequence from heterochromatin. But you can have rare chromosomal inversions um, which Drosophila geneticists used to love to discover. Um, and so what such a rare chromosome inversion does is it moves the barrier. So now the white gene is abutting up against the heterochromatic region. And so now, because of this very variation in the position of this gene, now it's susceptible to spreading of heterochromatin into the gene and silencing in clonal populations. Okay? So now you can see that instead of having this red eye where the white gene is active, now the white gene is being silenced in particular clones of cells and generating these white patches in the eye. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So this has actually been the basis for experiments like this have been the basis of a large number of genetic screens over the years to try and identify factors that are important for heterochromatin assembly, um, activation of gene expression, and so on. So you can identify using strains such as this where you've got a sensitized white gene. Okay, This gene can now be subject to heterochromatic forces. Now you can use this setup and mutate these flies and look for situations where now you get completely white eyes, okay, which would mean that you've got an enhancement of heterochromatin in these cells. So you've got a mutation that's doing something to enhance heterochromatin. Or you can look for situations where these patchy eyes revert back to being red eyes because you've got a defect in some heterochromatic factor or you've got um, an over amplification of the um, positive activation of the white gene. Okay? So, you know, this sort of system has been used extensively. So people have used marker genes inserted into regions of heterochromatin, which are normally silenced. And then you can look for um, abrogation of that silencing when you do a genome-wide mutation. Right? So you can do screens where you target cells with particular mutagens and then look for situations where this gene that's normally silenced when it's inserted into, say, some telomeric regions now becomes activated because now you've screwed up something in the heterochromatin assembly pathways. Okay? So it's, it's been the basis of many, many genetic screens. And you know, we know of hundreds and hundreds of proteins that are involved in heterochromatin regulation based on these types of screens that have been done in other organisms. Um, okay, histone tails. Um, as we mentioned, they are very lysine-rich. Um, lysines can be subject to different modifications, so they can be acetylated or they can be methylated. And if you think about methylation, methylation can occur in three different flavours okay, on lysines. So you can have monomethylation, dimethylation, and trimethylation. And in some instances, this can actually cause different outputs in terms of readout, in terms of chromatin function. Okay? Um, but the important thing to remember is that if you have an acetylated lysine, it can't be methylated. 
right? You have to go back to having a non-modified lysine before you can get methylation and so on. If you've got methylation, you have to be demethylated before you can be acetylated, okay? So we know of enzymes that are responsible for putting on these acetyl groups, HATs, histone acetyl transferases. We know of enzymes that are important for removal of these acetyl groups, histone deacetylases. We know of enzymes, histone methyl transferases, that put on methyl groups, and histone demethylases that can remove these groups. Okay? Um, so acetylation of chromatin results in a loosening, generally, of chromatin structure um, because of removal of positive charge from histone tails. Okay? So it reduces the affinity of the tail for binding DNA. Um, so that's one aspect of what these modifications can do. Um, methylation doesn't cause a charge change, so there's no change there in terms of um, what's happening. Um, but the most profound effect of the modifications is not just the changes in charge or addition of groups, but it's actually the fact that when you have these altered histone tails, now you form a substrate for recruitment of chromatin-modifying enzymes or proteins that can read these particular marks on the chromatin. Okay? And much of gene regulation um, is critically regulated by these proteins that read these different marks. And very often, it's not just um, acetylation on a particular residue. Um, here we go. So we know about lots of marks that occur on histone tails. Um, my favorite is histone H3, um, and it's pretty heavily decorated, as you can see here. So remember that each of these little M's is not just an M in most cases, but mono, di, or tri, right, which can have different readouts. So, um, uh, you know, there are many different configurations that you can imagine can occur on histone tails in a particular nucleosome. So the same histone tail can bear different modifications of different residues, okay? And the combination of those marks can then lead to changes in transcriptional outcome recruitment of particular proteins, DNA damage response, many, many features um, of genomic regulation. Okay, so very, very basically then, lysine 9 modifications um, on histone H3, methylation of lysine 9, generally um, correlates with heterochromatin formation and gene silencing. So at centromeres, for example, you have methylation on lysine 9 of histone H3, that's very important for formation of constitutive heterochromatin. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, methylation on lysine 4, in particular trimethylation of lysine 4, and acetylation at lysine 9 correlate usually with gene expression, um, as does serine 10-phosphorylation and acetylation on, H, uh, on lysine 14 of histone H3. Um, in contrast, silencing of gene expression, this formation of facultative heterochromatin that we talked about, um, is largely mediated by K27 methylation, okay? And again, it's trimethylation of lysine 27 that's the critical mark for silencing. Um, and there's a huge amount of interest in the complexes that mediate methylation on lysine 27 um, and their dysregulation in a huge number of cancers. 
Okay, so we mentioned that in addition to the histone tails, the cores, um, the histone fold domains are also subject to modification. And as I said, we don't know as much about these modifications, but it's an area of active interest at the moment in the field, not, not in my interest, but um, in the field. Okay, so we talked about these proteins that can read particular marks. Um, uh, very often, um, these reader proteins are composed of different modules. So you'll hear talk about um, particular domains within a protein that have particular um, histone modification binding ability. So um, some of my favorite proteins often have up to like four different reader domains within the protein. Um, so these proteins can actually monitor particular modifications of different residues on the histone tail. So they can read for K4 methylation as well as a modification occurring or not occurring at IC9. Okay, in some cases these reader proteins will be evicted if you have a particular modification. So there's a huge amount of play in the system in terms of how these reader proteins can be recruited to particular loci. Okay? They, they, the idea, I think, is that very often they're sort of scanning the genome and looking for particular combinations of marks, and then they'll bind and they'll recruit in other enzymes. Um, and, and very often these code reader complexes will come in, they'll recognize a particular pattern of marks on histone tails, and then they'll attract other components, and very often these have catalytic activity. And so very often what you'll find is that the reader will bind, it, once it's bound, it recruits in what we call a writer, right? one of the enzymes that can make marks on chromatin. And this reader-writer combination is very important in then spreading a particular nucleosome marking system. Um, on the histone tails. Does that make sense? We can talk about an example in a minute. Okay, so uh, subject close to my heart, so I work on um, several things. Um, half of my lab works on heterochromatin assembly um, and we use a model organism to do those experiments. We use fission yeast um, and the reason for that is that we can go in and do very exquisite genetic experiments. We can ask very dinky questions that it would take you a lifetime to do in, well, not now, not with CRISPR technology and so on, but in the old days, <laughs> it would take you a lifetime to do similar stuff in mammalian cells. So I think we'll probably have to start getting to do more mammalian work now. Um, but basically, um, what we know is that there's an enzyme called SUBAR39, well, this is the name of the, um, the enzyme in flies and in man, um, and they did for a man-centric audience. Um, so SUBAR39 is a writer. This writes methylation on lysine-9 of histone H3. So it's, it's homology in pombe is part 4. So this methylates lysine-9 on histone H3. Um, so we call SUBAR39 or class 4 writers of the mark. And then this mark is then read by a domain called a chromodomain, which is present in many proteins, in particular HP1, which is depicted here. Um, and so HP1 can then come in and read this mark on lysine 9. Okay? And what I don't have any slides is that um, we know that, it's not true in Pombe, but in mammalian cells, um, SUVAR39, the writer, can actually interact with HP1. Okay? 
So you can have a situation where you're getting writing on a tale, recruiting the reader, and then the reader can bind writer and allow it to spread and attack the next mechanism. Okay? And that's the way that you can think about of spreading of states. Okay? You have these complexes that can basically walk along a chromatin fiber until they reach something that they don't like, like acetylated by C9. Don't like that, right? <laughs> then they have to recruit in a histone deacetylase to get rid of that so that they can then write. Okay, so it's a very plastic system, right? It's not static at all. So if you have the enzymes and specify methylation of the different residues, different? Yes, yes, yeah. There are a whole series of different enzymes. Um, so, so, I mean, it, it varies between organisms. I mean, so if we think about lysine 36 on histone H3, in yeast, there's one enzyme called SET2, and that is able to do monodiamine trimethylation. So its active site allows it to recognize an unmodified tail. It can then put a methyl group on. The enzyme can still recognize that. It can put a second methyl group on, and then it can put a third methyl group on. Okay, So it can do all three states. In mammals, there are a bunch of maybe eight enzymes, um, some of which do zero to mono, some of which can only do mono to dye, some of which can do zero to dye, <laughs> right? So it's, it's very complex. Um, and there's a, so the problem with the field has been for a long time that um, you, so the way that we analyze chromatin marks is through a procedure called chromatin immunoprecipitation. That's kind of a classic way of doing it. So what you do is you have an antibody that recognizes a particular mark you use that antibody to immunoprecipitate chromatin after you've sheared it to a particular size. Um, and then you can uh, retrieve the DNA that the antibody has captured and sequence it or, or do a PCR reaction for it or whatever. Okay? And so that's classically the way that you look for the localization of particular marks on histone tails. But you're totally reliant on the quality of the antibodies for those experiments. Right? So if you've got an antibody that you know is sold by Millipore as being specific for K4 acetylation on this H3 thing, whoopee, great, I can do the experiment, right? But you always, 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 when you're doing chip experiments, you do chip experiments, test the validity of the antibodies, right? So very often something that's you know purported to be specific for a particular acetylation um, on a particular residue, sometimes because there are a lot of similarities actually in the sequence within histone H3 tails. There are, there are two runs of ARKS in the histone H3 tail. So something that's able to recognize at a particular location usually <coughs> recognize the second location, unless the antibody epitope is large enough that it you know, precludes it from being able to recognize the other site. So um, there are many, this has been a, so a ton of money has been funneled into looking at the chromatin profile of particular cell types. Okay, so um, embryonic stem cells, you know, particular cells, tissue culture cells that everyone uses for their experiments. So a ton of money was pumped into this by the NIH um, to basically get sort of like roadmaps, if you like, and all the chromatin modifications that occur so that you can actually use this information to define where promoters are and enhancers are. Um, ton of, I mean, it's been fantastic. A ton of information has come from it. But I think one of the key things that came from those studies was that people did a really good evaluation of antibodies that are sold as being ship, you know, specific antibodies. Um, and so that's really helped, you know, this database is available now for, for those antibodies. Um, so you can actually look up and, and get a lot of information. Or you can test it yourself. You can buy peptide blots 
that have like 300 different peptides with different modifications and histone tails, and you can check the specificity of the antibody on those blobs. Um, but those are just little technical things, but <laughs> well worth considering rather than um, investing a lot in experiments that might not necessarily be telling you what I think they are. Okay, so we talked about spreading, right? So you can have reader-writer complexes, and very often those ATP-dependent chromatin modeling complexes are involved in this process as well. Okay, so these guys can facilitate the spreading of marks um, through, um, you know, altering the configuration of nucleosomes um, to allow spreading of waves of particular um, chromatin marks. Okay, so how do cells normally block spreading? We talked about barrier sequences. Um, they're usually bound by proteins. Um, these proteins can do clever things like associate with particular domains um, within the cell to actually block the spreading um, of heterochromatic marks, for example. Um, these barrier proteins can kind of protect adjacent nucleosomes from being written by the writers, um, and that can um, block heterochromatin spreading. Um, but they can also sometimes recruit you know, the antagonistic factors. So if you've got you know, a sort of spreading heterochromatin <coughs> here, a barrier protein might recruit in very high levels of histone acetyl transferase activity, and that would be sufficient to then block spreading of the heterochromatin past that site. Okay. So um, this is known to be occurring at um, um, some particular locations within the centrum, for example. Okay. Yeah. So heterochromatic regions um, often associated with nuclear envelopes of perinuclear nucleolar regions. Um, whoops. Um, yeah, we talked about all that. Okay, histone variants. Actually, you know, before we get, let's not talk about histone variants now. Let's just finish talking about packaging. Right? The high levels of packaging. So we've talked about 30 nanometer fibers. Sorry, I'm screwing you around here, <laughs> changing all your things. Um, we also need to think about how these 30 nanometer fibers get further packaged. Okay? So what we know from these beautiful ancient studies looking at um, lap brush chromosomes from amphibolocytes, um, which got these massive chromosomes, is that you can actually see that along the chromosome fiber that you have these loops. Right? And these loops actually correspond to transcriptional activity. So these 30 nanometer regions get looped, usually on some sort of axis or some sort of scaffold, um, and the length of the loop can very often correlate with transcriptional activity. Okay, so you can have these little loops going on, and then you might get this huge extension in chromatin in the region. Um, and this correlates with transcriptional activity of genes on this locus. Um, so this idea of this sort of compaction of the 30 nanometer fiber by looping um, on a scaffold um, 
yes, it's a further level of compaction, but you have to be able to allow gene expression within that. And so what's, what occurs is these sort of loops that come out. And I think um, you can see that here, that you can get this high level of gene expression in these loops. And the assembly of these loops um, is dependent on histone-modifying enzymes, chromatin-remodeling complexes, and RNA polymerases. And just to show you, um, yeah, you get these. So, um, in polytene chromosomes of salivary glands and flies, um, <coughs> these are these crazy chromosomes that are just, you know, so many um, rounds of replication without cell division. So you get these enormous structures. Um, and again, you can see. Um, on these structures, that you have these puffs where you have RNA synthesis occurring. So if you um, hybridize these chromosomes with POL2, you can see that these puffs on the chromosomes correlate with where RNA polymerase is localized. Okay, so um, we mentioned that heterochromatin tends to be hanging out at the outsides of the nucleus um, in the um, in the nuclear periphery. Um, but many studies over the years, and actually these are beautiful studies that were done um, by a friend of mine, Wendy Bickmore, at the University, well, she's at the MRC in Edinburgh. Um, she has done a lot of these experiments where she's used different paints to highlight different chromosomes. And then through looking at cells, looking at fixed cells, you can actually sort of see these chromosome territories where particular chromosomes tend to hang out within the nucleus. Okay. Um, Wendy's also done a lot of experiments where she's incorporated GFP tags into chromosomes. And so what I mean by that is she's incorporated DNA binding sequences that can then um, recruit and engineer GFP to those sites. So you can basically tag a particular locus within a particular chromosome with GFP. And then in living cells, you can monitor how that chromosome moves around, um, depending on what you do to it, <laughs> what you do to a cell. Um, and so those, those have been really um, beautiful experiments. And you can see, and I think this is Wendy's work here, um, that, so this is, this is actually done through hybridization of fish, where you're actually looking for particular DNA sequences on a chromosome, but when you done it now in live cells, where she's marked particular regions of chromosomes with GFP, and you can see that particular chromosomes um, hang out in particular regions. Um, and as you activate genes expression, so for example, these cells might be hit with um, an enzyme that blocks histone deacetylase function, sort of cause of general activation of gene expression. And when you do that type of experiment, you can see that these chromosome territories alter. Okay? So these chromosomes aren't localized absolutely on the periphery anymore, but you can actually see that these particular genes that have been marked here, can you see that it's away from the body of the chromosome now? Okay? So on gene activation, you get these little fibrils, if you like, coming out from the bulk of the chromosome. And that's a side of gene activity. Okay.
was this idea of nuclear neighborhoods. Um, if you think about transcription, in particular, I think if you think about a particular, say, an erythroid cell lineage or something like that, there are a bunch of genes that are regulated by common transcription factors. Okay? So erythroid transcription factors are going to have sequences in the promoters of many of these genes that need to be expressed in the erythroid lineage. So a very sensible and cost-effective way for the cell to be able to allow expression of these genes is to actually generate like little transcription factor complex um, factories. <laughs> and so these little, you get, air, the idea is that there are areas within the nucleus where there's a concentration of particular transcription factors that have similarity in terms of the genes that they um, are responsible for controlling. And then the idea is that um, on gene activation, you know, the cell changes in response to signals, and these regions containing these erythroid-specific genes, for example, actually physically move so that these regions then are incorporated into these transcription factories. And so there they have this rich milieu of all of the transcription factors that they need for gene activation. Okay. Very cool idea. Again, it's one of those things that there's been an idea that's been around for a while, but there's actually really good evidence for this now um, from Peter Fraser's work. Um, okay, what did I skip through? So can I just in for a second? Yeah. Because I'm going to talk about recombination in a while, and I want you guys to think about this idea of nuclear neighborhoods because that recombination in the T cells is dependent upon through movement of the chromosomes that are undergoing recombination to these neighborhoods that are transcriptionally active. So recombination and transcription are linked as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, this is one of the things that Peter's really interested in now. So he's been characterizing these sort of transcription factories, and you know his focus is really on the erythroid gene expression. Um, but the idea is very much that you're getting these environments where you've got, because it always seems, when you look at chromosome translocations, but you all, you know, very frequently you'll get the same translocation occurring time and time again between two particular chromosomes. And, you know, the idea is that perhaps these chromosomes that maybe in terms of chromosome painting experiments that I showed you earlier don't necessarily hang out together, right, within the nucleus in terms of territory that they occupy. But these particular genes where you see these translocations do share common regulatory sequences very often or, or regulatory factors. And so one of the ideas is, is that you get the combination occurring in these transcription factories because these genes have been moved to these particular domains. Yeah, so it's a very, very cool idea. Yeah. Okay, so we need to just cover the last levels of packaging. Um, and that is how you get right up to the metaphase chromosome. Okay? And that's um, dependent on these um, condensing complexes. Okay, so these are again ATP dependent proteins. Um, they're heterodimers made up of SMC2 and SMC4 in this case. Um, they have these hinge regions and these head domains, and it's the head domains that have got ATP binding, um, uh, combined ATP. Um, and so the idea is that these things form these dimers that can surround DNA loops, 
Okay, so you can have this looping of the DNA. We talked about you know the higher order looping that you can see. Um, very often that's on scaffolds, but then this could be another further level of packaging where you have these condensins surrounding um, these DNA um, configurations, and then they interact with each other. And so then you form this sort of scaffold, which actually forms the center, if you like, of the sister chromatid. So if you look um, at this metaphase chromosome, okay, you can see this beautiful stripe down the middle of each sister chromatid, where condensin is highly um, um, prevalent in these domains. And if you actually look down a sister chromatid fiber, you can see that condensin is sort of central hub, if you like, from which all these loops of DNA are emanating. Okay. So this is how you get the highest level of packaging into the metaphase chromosome. Okay, so we've covered DNA, they packaged into um, nucleosomal configurations, bead on string configurations how you go from that through the zigzag zonoid into thermodynamic fibers, the importance of histone-tail interactions in this packaging. Um, we talked about further looping on chromosome scaffolds, where you then have these loops that can emanate to allow transcription of particular loci. Um, further condensation um, through use of condensins um, to generate then this very condensed form the metaphase chromosome, which is 10,000-fold condensed over just the normal DNA. Okay, so DNA is associated with histones, and you can mass and histoprotein before chromosome. Um, we've got these nucleosomes, which are composed of histone optimas, surrounded by 147 bases of DNA. We have this linker region that combined H1, and that binding of H1 is important for packaging between nucleosomes because it allows bending of the DNA. Transcriptionally active chromatin is condensed, transcriptionally active chromatin is open and extended, and we have these reversible modifications on histone tails that um, influence um, recruitment of reader and writers um, as well as influencing packaging. Um, histone tails can be modified by methylation, phosphorylation, ubiquitination, uh, there are many more modifications um, phosphorylation and, and many new modifications are being identified it seems every week so um, I'm probably going to say this wrong but I think it's like a citrullation which can occur many 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 different modifications that can occur on these system tails um, now that people have got fancy enough specs they can find all these weird modifications <laughs> um, Histone modifications can influence chromatin structure by regulating attraction to other DNA binding proteins. Transcriptionally active chromatin is hypoacetylated, condensed. Transcriptionally active chromatin is hypoacetylated, and there's a huge amount of compaction that has to occur to allow formation of the metaphase chromosome. Right, so now I'm going to go back and we can talk about, if I can find the slide. Okay, histone variants. Okay, so histones, we have four H2A, H2B, H3, H4 that are arranged into nucleosome structures. Um, 
There are histone variants for each of the histones apart from H4. Okay? So I'm just going to talk now about some of the H3 variants. Okay? So um, um, SAMP A is a protein which is called a histone H3 variant. Okay? It's actually quite different from histone H3. It's quite diverged. Okay? Um, what this histone H3 protein does is it is specifically incorporated into a genome in the sites that form centromeres. Okay? Um, a lot of work has been done on this protein um, in budding yeast. So budding yeast are a very strange organism in that they have very, very small centromeres, very, very tiny, 125 bases is all you need for centromere in budding yeast. Okay? There are particular DNA sequences that are important for um, centromere function in cerevisiae. And the um, SEMPE homologue, which is called CSE4, binds to the nucleosome, the nucleosome that forms on the budding yeast centromere. Okay? So that nucleosome, I think they need to do water there because there's a lot of controversy about how that nucleosome is assembled. But basically, replacing histone H3 within that nucleosome is CSE4. Okay? So you have H4. There's controversy about whether H2A and H2B are in that nucleosome. I think they are. Um, <laughs> but again, it's one of those things that is subject to you know, whose papers you read. Um, so what the, the critical thing about this is that this histone H3 variant um, replaces histone H3 in nucleosomes that are at centromeres. And it's this histone H3 variant that actually causes assembly of what we know of as kinetical. Okay? So I don't know if you've heard that term before, kinetical. So kineticals are these proteinaceous structures that capture spindle microtubules to allow chromosome segregation. But it's the, how those kinetics form is absolutely specified by SEMPE. Okay? Kineticals will only form where SEMPE is localised. Okay? So it's a critical histone H3 variant. Um, so here's a nucleosome with um, a centromere-specific histone H3. Um, so in yeast, as I said, it forms the only, um, it forms this nucleosome that is wrapped by centromere sequences. And this is what dictates then the assembly of this huge complex proteins, which then allows capturing spindle microtubules um, to allow uh, chromosome segregation to occur. Same is true in higher organisms um, with SEMPE. Um, again, this is work from another friend of mine, Beth Sullivan, when she was um, in. So basically what Beth found was that, um, that there is a very interesting um, patterning of SEMPE incorporation into centromeric DNA sequences in humans and flies. Okay, so centromeres in humans and flies can occupy megabases of DNA, okay, but they're specified by incorporation of histone H3 variant SEMPE protein. Okay. It's not present in all nucleosomes within the centromeric DNA. It's present in particular nucleosomes scattered along that region. Okay. Um, and 
the idea from Beth's work where she did fish to, um, and, and antibody staining to look at patterns of localization of Sempay um, is that basically she's got these patches where she's got Sempay incorporated that are flagged by normal histone H3 nucleosomes. Okay, so there's an alternating pattern in this centromeric domain of patches where you've got SMK and patches where you've got histone H3. Um, and the idea is that you've got this sort of solenoid wrapping of these patches of interspersed SMP so that you have a face where SMP is solely present within the centromeric DNA sequence. Okay? And that has an underbed of histone H3 that's got a particular mark on lysine 4, um, methylation on lysine 4, dimethylated lysine 4. But it's this SEMPE that then directs recruitment of other kinetical proteins to allow assembly of the, the kinetical and its function. Okay. okay, so that's one variant of H3. Um, and obviously when you start to think about variants of proteins um, in terms of nucleosomes, how do you maintain incorporation of SEMPE at particular regions of the genome. Okay? So unlike budding yeast, where there's a particular DNA sequence that specifies that this is a centromere, in mammals that's not the case. Right? There's a preponderance of alpha satellite sequences, um, sequences of 170 bases, um, that are tandemly repeated in these huge arrays. But those sequences themselves are not sufficient to say, put SEMPE here, right? as is observed by the fact that you get changes in SEMPE and H3 incorporation through those DNA sequences. Okay? So how do you maintain a state? Right? You have to replicate that DNA. Right? When you replicate the DNA, you have a machinery that's sitting ready to go to pull in normal histone H3 into those nucleosomes that are now being deposited following replication. Right? How do you maintain a particular state where you've got SEMPE deposition in these nucleosomes rather than normal histone H3? That's an area of huge amounts of research at the moment. Trying to figure out, you know, we know that there are particular chaperones for SEMPE and H4 dimers in tetramers, um, but how do you, what happens? Is normal histone H3 deposited following DNA replication, and then chaperones and chromatin remodelers come in, kick out that H3, and put back in a SEMPE? How is it, how is it working? Right? It's an area that is not well understood, and there are many theories out there. Again, people sort of thinking, you know, you're, you're not evicting whole nucleosomes, you're splitting nucleosomes, etc., etc. There's, there's many different models. Um, but it's a critical thing to think about, not just in terms, I mean, obviously massively important for centromere function, right, but in terms of other histone variants, how do you maintain their status in terms of, you know, through cell division, how do you, how is the <coughs> genetics working in terms of maintenance of a particular histone modification or um, a particular histone variant in a particular location. So, um, do we have a... Yay, talk. Can I get rid of this? How do I do that? John, do you know? I don't know. You don't know? Okay. Okay, well, we can just talk. Okay, so. <laughs> um, oops. Okay, so it's other histone variant, H3.3. 
Um, oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Great. Um, is, I think, fascinating. Um, it's really similar to H3, right? So H3, H3.3. I've just written finishing touches of a review, so I can give it to you if you want on this histone if that would be of interest. But one of the most, for me, fascinating things that's come out, so you guys know about the genome sequencing projects that have been done at St. Jude, right? So we've sequenced many, many pediatric cancers, right? I think one of the most fascinating things that came out of this is the identification of mutations for the first time in histone proteins. I told you that there's been a whole slew of mutations that have been identified in histone modifiers, readers, writers, all the rest of it, um, chromosomal modelers. But for the first time ever, mutations were identified actually in a core histone subunit. Um, and that discovery was made at St. Jude as well as at another lab in Canada at the same time. So, um, uh, it was work from Susan Bacon's lab. So, um, what was found was that in pediatric, pediatric high-grade glioma, okay? So, these are really, really aggressive tumors. Um, they, the, the, the diagnosis for these kids is just awful. So, basically, from presentation to, you know, from two years after presentation, 10% of kids live. Right. I mean, it's just awful. Um, some of these... I get checked. We'll talk about it. Sorry. Um, so, God, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have um, parents and a kid that keep communicating with me. It gets very emotional. Um, so, um, what Susie's... What the sequencing found was that in these high-grade gliomas, there are two mutations that have been identified. One is um, in lysine 27, Right? So if you remember, this is the lysine that's important for facultative heterochromatin formation when it's methylated, trimethylated. Okay? Um, and this is the um, methylation which is critical for regulation of Hox gene expression or, or suppression of Hox gene expression and so on and so forth. So um, a mutation was found in lysine 27 to insert a methionine at this residue. Okay? Um, the other mutation that was found um, was mutations of glycine 34. Okay, so glycine 34 isn't modified in itself, but it sits two residues upstream of K36. Okay, and K36 methylation is um, uh, a modification which is associated with transcriptional activity. Okay, it's also very highly important for um, regulation of DNA damage um, and many other things. Okay? But the really interesting thing about this, um, what I didn't mention perhaps, is that there are many copies of histones, of histone genes within cells. Okay? So the comp there are th basically 32 alleles encode histone H3 variants in your cells. The mutation was found in one allele, okay? But it was found in like 70%, in some instances, in 70% of tumors, in these particularly aggressive tumors, which are DIPGs, diffuse intrinsic pontine gliomas. So these are um, gliomas that occur in the ponds, which is sort of in the 
the back of the brain. And so basically it's inoperable. Um, and it's really difficult to get drugs in to treat these kids. Um, so you know, anything we can find out about these cancers is, is key. Um, so the cool thing is that many of these mutations were actually found in... So there are 10 genes that encode H3.1, okay, which is the canonical histone H3. Right? And there are two genes that encode H3.3. Right? Mutations were predominantly found in these guys, okay? which I think is really interesting. So the other thing that I didn't tell you is that um, as you replicate DNA, we talked about the um, histone chaperone called CAF1. Right? So CAF1 binds H3, H4 binds in tetramers. Okay? Um, but that is actually 3.1 and 3.2, okay, which is very similar to 3.1. Histone H3.3 differs from H3.1 by just four, um, or four or five amino acids. Okay? Three are present in this histone fold lane and one in the tail. Um, so deposition on replication is deposition of canonical H3, right, which is known as H3.1 or H3.2. Um, but this histone variant, H3.3, it differs to 3.1 in many ways. One way is that it's expressed constitutively, right, it's expressed throughout the cell cycle, and it's expressed in cells that are quiescent even, okay? In contrast, 3.1 undergoes this massive pink in S phase, which makes a lot of sense, right? It's the histone that's needed on replication to assemble chromatin. So H3.1 is massively expressed in S phase. It's associated with particular um, chromatin um, assembly factor to be deposited during replication. 3.3 is expressed constitutively. It associates with distinct histone chaperones, so ATRX and DAX are chaperones that are responsible for putting it into regions of heterochromatin. And then it also associates with HERA, which is another histone chaperone, um, which puts it into regions of gene activity. Okay? Um, so, as I said, the mutations were predominantly found in this subunit, the H3.3 subunits. Okay? Um, so what is super cool is that in cells, tumor cells from these patients, the level of H3.3 varying mutation is very low, right? And you can model this where you express this mutant histone. And you can express it so it's only 2% of the total H3, right? I think in, in cells it's found up to like 20% of the total H3, right? But this incredibly cool thing about this is that this particular mutation, this methionine present at lysine 27, has a dominant effect. So it can block methylation on all of the other histone H3 in the cell, okay? So... If you think about K27 methylation as being a master regulator of gene differentiation, 
right? It's a master repressor. Um, if now you have just a low level expression of this H3.3 K27M in cells, this can bind up all of the PRC2 complex, which is the complex that methylates K27. Okay? So the idea is that the, the EZH2 subunit, which is actually the, the enzymatic subunit of this complex, normally is the enzyme that puts methyl groups on lysine 27. But if you have a K27 methionine mutation, EZH2 gets stuck on that. And so now it's no longer available to methylate any other H3 within the cell. Okay? So you can actually mimic this just by putting in peptides that have got a methionine on K27 with a bit more of H3 sequence around it. But you can put that into cells and completely or almost completely block all of the other methylation on lysine 27 in these cells. So if you overexpress that enzyme, you compensate for the feedback in methylation? Uh, people haven't done that, actually. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So there's some weirdness to this, right? If you look at global levels of lysine 27 methylation by Western, it's massively down. But if you do ChIP-seq, you actually find that there are little islands where there's actually enhancement of K27 methylation. So it's clearly more complicated than this sort of, you know, simplistic way of looking at it. Um, so we know that there are other enzymes that can do methylation on K27. There's another enzyme called EZH1. So it's possible that EZH1 isn't blocked by K27N, and it can go off and do its own little thing in other areas, right? That's one possibility. The other possibility is um, if you think about modes of recruitment of this histomethyltransferase. Um, this, this is a, a complex of many subunits, many readers within it, um, other enzymatic activities within it as well. One possibility is that these islands that escape, that maintain or actually are accentuated for K27 methylation, perhaps PRC2 is being recruited through a different mechanism to those particular loci, perhaps through a DNA binding factor or something like that, um, and is able to you know, be away from it to be, to be um, separately regulated from the bulk of the K27, of the um, EZH2. So we are um, actively pursuing all of this stuff at the moment. Um, so we've modeled the mutations in yeast. Um, unfortunately, Palmby does not have a K27 methylation pathway, but we've done a lot of work modeling this mutant um, and looking at how it's impacting um, methylation on K36 and how that's then influencing um, many things such as um, um, uh, you know, DNA damage pathways um, in the cells. So, sorry there wasn't a slide for this, but um, if you're interested, I can give you the review. It's, uh, I think it's a really fascinating area. It's my bag. So. <laughs> okay, does anyone have any questions? We've got right for time. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, if you do, I'll see you next time. Um, so I'm, I'm doing Steve's doing a lecture on Thursday, and I'm doing next Tuesday's. Okay. So we'll talk about. I transpose and I'm sorry. Yeah, so I reminded you to register your schedules and see you Wednesday, January 21st, with the morning schedules. I don't have a block now.
Thank <laughs> you. 